Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. We just wanted to take a moment to thank you, our listeners, for welcoming us into your ears each week. It is a pleasure indeed to connect you with some of the leading historians and scholars working today. Now that summer has come and the Virginia heat is on the rise here in July 2020, it's time to bring Season 4 of the podcast to a close. But don't despair. As Gandalf once said, the journey doesn't end here. While my colleagues and I are busy recording with some amazing guests for Season 5, we'll keep the conversation going by bringing you the audio version of some of our recent and upcoming Washington Library livestream digital book talks. Now, I'll be in the host chair for some of these live stream turned podcast episodes, but you'll also hear from voices familiar to those of you who have been longtime listeners to this show. In fact, for today's episode, we bring you Dr. Kevin Butterfield's recent conversation with Dr. Mary Beth Norton about her new book, 1774, The Long Year of Revolution. Norton is Mary Donnellan Alger Professor Emerita at Cornell University. For over 40 years, she has been one of the leading scholars of the Revolutionary Era, with books on American loyalists, women and gender, and witchcraft. Now, as with all live streams, you might hear an audio glitch here and there when the internet decided not to cooperate. And if you'd rather watch the video version, complete with the images Norton and Butterfield discuss, check it out at www.mountvernon.org slash gwdigitaltalks. Season 5 of Conversations will begin rolling out in mid-August. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this program. Good evening, everyone. My name is Kevin Butterfield. I'm the executive director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington and Mount Vernon. Uh, I'm excited uh, to welcome you to another book talk uh, that we're having virtually uh, from my home to yours uh, and an option, an opportunity for us to explore uh, one of the great recent books published uh, in American history. Uh, we have exciting uh, material uh, to cover tonight. We have exciting interviews coming up uh, just around the bend. I want to mention two uh, on Thursday at noon, so over the lunch hour. Uh, we're going to have a special interview with Dr. Paul Gillia, one of the great scholars of uh, protests and even rioting across the entirety of American history, but particularly in the founding era. We're going to have a conversation with him about protests in the streets from the founding era to today and really explore uh, the long history of uh, political violence and political statements made in public. Uh, and one week from tonight, uh, another book talk, and this will be our, our Ford Foundation evening book talk uh, for the month of June. I will be with Dr. Lindsay Trevinsky with her new book on George Washington's cabinet, which is an exciting opportunity for us to explore uh, George Washington and his presidency. Uh, tonight, we're going, going to be exploring a much earlier period of George Washington's uh, career. And in fact, uh, really one of the first times that he enters onto the national stage uh, in 1774. And it's my great uh, pleasure to, to welcome you uh, tonight to, to a conversation with the uh, Mary Donnellan Alger Professor of American History at Cornell University, uh, Mary Beth Norton. Uh, we're gonna be exploring her book, uh, 1774, the Long Year of Revolution, which came out just a few months ago. Uh, really excited to have this conversation. And one thing I want to tell you is I'm going to ask a handful of questions. Uh, but after that, uh, so about halfway through our time together, around uh, 730, uh, my time, uh, you'll have an opportunity uh, for your questions uh, to, to come before the author. Uh, and you can submit them anytime. You can start doing it right now uh, in, in the ways that you would uh, type in a question. Uh, some of you are coming to us through Facebook and others through other means. Uh, so just submit questions. And one uh, lucky 
question submitter uh, will receive a free copy of this book, uh, um, this uh, this wonderfully exciting book, 1774, uh, simply for submitting a question. Uh, you'll be entered into a drawing. Uh, and the rest of you, of course, uh, have an op opportunity to buy this book, uh, which I highly recommend uh, if you want to understand uh, the origins uh, and the early um, uh, first stirrings of an American revolution. So, uh, Dr. Norton, uh, Mary Beth, if I may, uh, thanks for being with us tonight. Uh, excited to talk to you. Uh, can you tell us where you're coming to us from? I'm coming to you from Ithaca, New York, but in fact, I'm not seeing anything at the moment. You're not seeing anything? Nope. Okay. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why. Um, are you able to hear me just fine? I can hear you just fine. Can you see Should me? We? I can see you just fine, and, I, and I'm, I'm quite confident that the audience can as well. Okay. Uh, although, if the producers tell us different, uh, then we can adjust right there. Oh, I'm just, wait a minute. It's, my computer is asking me for my password. Just a minute. It went, it went dormant on me. That's the problem. That's okay. We'll get there. Hang on. Do you feel like you have it solved? No, not yet. It's decided I didn't like, it didn't like my first attempt at my <laughs> This happens Well, I'm glad you can hear me, time. so at least we can talk through this. There we go. Sorry. What do you think? Are we are we on? Okay, yes. good. We're on. Yes, well, I can see you. You can see me. At least I can see me. <laughs> I can see you, and everyone can. Uh, and Jeanette, uh, behind the scenes, just let us know that everything looks great. So we are all set. Okay, so let's start uh, with a, a really a straightforward question. Uh, this is a book about 1774, but you begin it in 1773. Tell us, uh, set the stage for us. What, what happens in 1773 that makes that the, the way uh, to start a book about this long year of revolution? Well, you use the phrase, the long year of revolution. I actually start 1774 in October of 73 and end it in um, in April of 75 when the fighting starts. And that's because it's October of 73 when the colonists learn that um, tea ships are coming from England directly with East India Company tea to uh, sell in Boston, in New York, in Philadelphia, and in Charleston. And um, until that time, um, East India Company could not sell tea directly to Americans. And the East India Company was being very badly out um, outclassed, shall we say, by smugglers. And so the whole idea behind East India Company teas coming directly from the company was that the um, East India Company would be able to um, undersell the smugglers and take back the American tea market, which was huge. I mean, think think Starbucks, but think tea in the, in the 18th century, because everybody said that Americans were prodigious. That was the word they used, prodigious tea drinkers. So this is go, going to culminate, I, I don't mean to spoil the fun, but I think most of our, our audience will know this, going to culminate in a, in a tea party in Boston. Uh, but what, what's the problem? What is the grievance with the, this East India Company tea? The grievance with it is that um, the tea was being, uh, the, the British um, Parliament allowed the East India Company to, um, to export the tea without paying, well, without paying the full taxes that had been uh, applied to it before. And that was the way they were going to undercut the smugglers. They were going to be able to sell for less money um, and uh, then the smugglers could, or they at least compete with them in price. And right. what the Americans were concerned about, I mean, we all tend to think today that the Boston Tea Party was a protest against higher taxes, but it was actually a protest against lower taxes. 
because what the British government had done was to lower the taxes to be paid by the East India Company so the East India Company could compete with smuggled tea. So what's the problem with low taxes? Um, the problem with low taxes is the symbolism of the tax itself. The Americans did not want to pay any tax, high or low, and so um, the idea was to, to, to fight the tea, the arrival of the tea, to fight the taxes. So with this, this concern about uh, unjust taxation, and of course, the, everyone I'm sure is, is at the, the phrase, no taxation without representation is, is running through their minds right now. Uh, with that concern, uh, there's a, a move to, uh, uh, to react uh, violently, actually, in a lot of ways, to, to British uh, claims to the power to tax. Uh, there's an image that actually you shared with me, uh, and it's, it's uh, one that's parallel to one in your book. Uh, can you describe us what's happening here? I, I think in the background, people can see a tea party. Um, sure. But tell us what, what, what we see here and tell us what this says about the American reaction. Uh, well, in, the, in the foreground, what you see is a, um, a, customs, a customs collector being, um, being tarred and feathered. That's not the point of the image. The point of the image is the tea party in the background. It's the, this uh, cartoon was done in England. Shortly after news arrived in uh, in England of of the Tea Party, and so it's this is the only even semi contemporary view of the Tea Party that is over there in the left background. Um, we don't know whether the cartoonists talked to people who had seen the Tea Party, but there were people in London by that point who had been in Boston and who were reporting to Parliament on what had happened. So um, this is the most. Um, the clearest contemporary view we have or the most semi-contemporary view we have of what happened in Boston in December of 1773, because that's when the Tea Party happened. So how did the how did the, the, the British uh, populace, the British government, how did they react when this happened? Uh, we, we see it as a famous um, moment of patriotism, but, but how, right. how, uh, the British how did were they furious. The British were furious and the um, parliament adopted the Boston Port Act, closing the port of Boston uh, to all traffic except for food and fuel, that is to keep the city alive until the tea was paid for. So they were the the parliament was totally infuriated by the Boston Tea Party. Well, and you said until the tea was paid for, was it was it a valuable uh, amount that was? Oh yes, worth? it was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in wow. modern, modern money. Um, would have been the um, the cost of the tea that was thrown overboard. Yeah, they threw overboard hundreds of chests, and the chests each contained the chests of regular tea were three hundred and twenty pounds each, and the chests of of good tea, green tea, was seventy pounds each, and they were hundreds of chests thrown overboard. Wow. So, so yeah, it was um, it was a lot of tea, and um, so there was a lot of discussion in America about what to do about this. Um, there were various wealthy people in Boston who said, okay, well, we'll help pay for the tea. This is once they learned that the, um, that the Brits had, were insisting on the tea be paid for. Then others said, no, we really can't pay for the tea at all. We shouldn't pay for the tea. Other people said, let's get all of Massachusetts to contribute. Other people said, let's get all the colonies to contribute. And in fact, the debate went on for, for months and months and months about what should be done about compensating the East India Company for the tea that had been destroyed. And it was not decided until the First Continental Congress in October of 1774 that Americans would not, in fact, pay for this tea. Wow. So one of the one of the things, uh, one of the many things that I learned uh, in, in reading your book that I, I 
didn't know, and if I did, I, I, I think I might have had uh, the vaguest inklings of it, is that there, there are other cities, there are other ships uh, where tea uh, is is a prominent point of discussion, a point of uh, anxiety. Americans not sure how to react. You don't have to tell us about all of them, but can you give us a sense of, of, of the, uh, the, the rest of the country? Well, the most obvious example is Charleston, because, in fact, I didn't know this until I did this book, but the tea ship arrived in Charleston at basically the same time as the tea ships arrived in Boston. So Boston had three ships heading, or four ships heading for it. One wrecked on Cape Cod, and I can talk about that. But in Charleston... Um, the tea ship arrived at basically four or five days after the tea ships arrived in Boston. And in Charleston, the, the, the discussions turned out very differently. Um, men in Charleston literally could not decide what to do. Um, they had repeated meetings and argued and argued about what to do, how to respond to the, to the tea. Should they, um, should they agree not to import East India Company tea? Should they agree not to import any tea? Should they, what should they do about um, about um, smuggled tea. There was a lot of smuggling of tea in Charleston. Right. And so in the end, they just sort of threw up their hands and let the customs officers confiscate the tea for non-payment of the duty. Wow. So in, in all of this, uh, then, uh, you mentioned, uh, you already mentioned the, the, the Port Act, uh, the reaction of the government. I think you uh, you, sh- you shared with us an image of, of, of the, the Boston port uh, that, that we have as right. one of the uh, images in your book. Uh, this is gives, I think, some sense, really, of the of the size and significance of, of the Boston port. Um, and, and you described this, uh, the closure of the port until they paid for the tea. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's one of the, uh, it's, that's really just a first step in the reaction to what Boston did. Can you just give, give us a sense of how the British government reacted across uh, the months that you cover in the book? Yeah, sure. So the next, the next two things they did first, they, they, they penalized Boston, but the next thing they did was to adopt two other laws both of which were pertinent were, were pertinent to Massachusetts. The first reformed the government of Massachusetts. Um, the Massachusetts had been operating under a charter from the late 17th century, and so what they did in the Massachusetts Government Act was to regularize the charter. The details don't matter, but they, the Parliament changed the charter of Massachusetts to make it more like the charters of the other colonies, and people in Massachusetts were outraged by that. Some people in the other colonies said, uh, it doesn't matter because it just makes your charter more like ours. But then there was the third act, which really um, angered people everywhere, I discovered, and that was called the Administration of Justice Act. Mm. And what it provided was that if a British soldier or a British official was charged with assault or murder for attacking a colonist, they could be tried in England rather than in the colonies. The easiest way to think about this is to think that if the Boston Massacre had happened when this law was in effect, the Boston Massacre trial could have taken place in London. And so this outraged people. I mean, even people who I discovered were future loyalists thought this was a terrible act. And um, I think this was really pushed the Americans over the edge in terms of opposing the British in fact, they they called it the Murder Act. I discovered. Um, wow! And it, 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 essentially, they they believed that it would uh, allow British uh, officials to act with impunity without yeah, sort of any completely that they would because how if you were going to have a trial for a, a British official who was charged with killing a colonist and he was going to be in England, how could someone you know how would the witnesses get there? How could the how could the trial actually be honest and be fair? Yeah. 
And so um, this really outraged people. I, I discovered people, it was very interesting because I think a lot of people don't realize that these laws, which are called the coercive acts altogether, that these yeah. laws were not adopted all at the same time and that the news about them trickled into the colonies slowly. I discovered various people, as I just said, there were people who who defended the Boston Port Act because they said, well, Boston did it. You know, they shouldn't have destroyed the tea. There were people who defended the Massachusetts Government Act because the Massachusetts government um, was, as I said, uh, anomalous the way in, in, in connection, in, in uh, combination with the other colonies. But nobody, nobody defended the Administration of Justice Act. Nobody defended wow. the Act anywhere. And well, they just maintained a discreet silence. People who were made, <laughs> defending the others were discreetly silent about the Murder Act. Well, and, and actually, uh, you, you've now opened up the door for us to start talking about places outside of Massachusetts. Uh, and, uh, of course, coming from Mount Vernon, I, I want to ask you uh, to, to tell us a little bit about how, the reaction in Virginia. Uh, and then uh, and I actually uh, this is as everyone uh, watching this, uh, that's a, a long time attendee of our events will know uh, George Washington um, uh will be uh, named Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army in the next year. Uh, and maybe next year you'll write a book about 1775, and I, I doubt that. Uh, but, uh, but at this point, uh, Washington is very aware of what's happening uh, across the country. Uh, how did he react to, to what happened in Boston? And well, what do you know about Virginia and, and uh, Washington? What's himself? really interesting about Washington is that Washington has this, there's this famous quote from Washington, which he says, the cause of Boston is, the cause of, is now the cause of America. But people who quote that often leave out the parenthesis he put at the end of it, which is not that we approve their destruction of the tea. Okay. So he's like everybody else in Virginia, or almost everybody else in Virginia. I mean, they are very much um, opposed to what's being done to Boston. That is the closing of the Boston port. They donate money. They donate goods and so forth. This is true all over. This is what people emphasize in their works on this period. But in fact, What's really fascinating to me is the way in which he and everybody else made an exception for the destruction of the tea. Really, hardly anybody supported it, including the county resolutions that were adopted in Virginia that summer. There were 20, we have recorded 29 counties expressing their opinion on um, what's going on over the course of the summer of 1774. Only one county, Essex County, says, yep, Boston was right to destroy the tea. Wow. Most of the counties just maintain a discreet silence. They don't say anything. Uh, one county says, Boston, you were wrong to destroy the tea. And three counties kind of came down in the middle and they said, well, we don't know whether they were right or not. But if they were, even if they were, uh, they were um, punished too harshly by the British. So it's really fascinating to me to think about the silences People yeah. don't usually think about the silences in these resolutions. And that, by the way, had happened in New England, too. There were a whole series of resolutions in, um, in um, Rhode Island and in New Hampshire and Maine, um, much closer, of course, in time to the, um, to the uh, destruction of the tea. And they did not approve the tea. They did not say, we think that Boston did the right thing in throwing the tea in the harbor. Colonists were very worried about the destruction of private property. So for those of you just joining us, uh, again, you'll have an opportunity for your questions to be posed uh, here shortly in just a, a, a 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, so please submit your questions in the comments. Uh, excited to be talking 
with uh, Dr. Mary Beth Norton about the book 1774. And actually, uh, this uh, as now that we started talking about Virginia and, and moving outside of Massachusetts, I think it's a good opportunity for us to uh, talk about the um, the coordination efforts of, of the of the colonies. Uh, and of course, this is the the year where we see the creation of a what we can now call the First Continental Congress. I doubt they called themselves that. Uh, but the First Continental Congress uh, gathers in this year. Uh, one of the images in your book shows a, a cover image of the journal of, the, of their proceedings, which has a liberty pole and, and all the hands of the nation coming together. Uh, tell us uh, tell us about the First Continental Congress. Uh, what, what should people know about this, this first gathering? Well, what's interesting about it is that the British were, when they got news, when the British ministry got news that the Americans were going to, um, that the Americans were going to meet, um, that they were planning to meet in a general Congress, they sent uh, directions to the governors to prevent the, uh, to tell the governors to prevent the assemblies from um, electing official delegates to the Congress. They didn't want that to happen. And so as a result, the um, uh, what's interesting is that over the summer of 1774, the colonists um, elected delegates, but in a very irregular manner. They did so usually by the creation of provincial congresses, which then elected the delegates. Um, so ironically, the British trying to stop the Congress from happening, in effect, created a body that the governors, the colonial governors, could not control. And the governors, in fact, said this to the to the British ministry, you know, we cannot tell these people what to do because they're not members of an official assembly. I mean, if it was an assembly, we could dissolve it, but they're not an assembly, so we cannot control what they're doing. And, and, and one of the wilder things that happened, let me just say, one of the wilder things that happened was in North Carolina, where, in fact, both... Um, the, there was a provincial congress and an assembly that were meeting simultaneously that had exactly the same members. And the, the governor issued, uh, gave a speech to the assembly denouncing the members of the, of the convention who were exactly the same people. I mean, it was such a farce. It was just amazing. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so they get together, and I think people can picture – largely because of the wonderful paintings that we have of the Second Continental Congress signing the Declaration of Independence. People can picture the Constitutional Convention. Um, what, what, what kind of things did the First Continental Congress do? Um, was it similar to the Second Continental Congress? Was it smaller, bigger? Well, what do we know about it? Well, it's about the same size. Um, I mean, every, every colony except Georgia sent delegates to both uh, First and Second Continental Congresses. Um, the delegations were of different sizes, but basically it's the same size, the same, same, many of the same men were sent back to the second continental Congress who'd been at the first continental Congress to what me. Did they accomplish? What, well, what, what did they, they accomplished? Yeah. What they accomplished was they spent lots and lots of time writing statements of principle and lots and lots of time drafting statements to the King, um, uh, a letter to the, uh, residents of the of America, a letter to Canadians to try to get them to join in um, to what they were doing. Um, and what's interesting, of course, they did not address Parliament because they were denying the authority of Parliament over the colonies. That was one of the main things they were doing. So they did not address Parliament. Um, some of the original, some of the colonies uh, who sent their own petitions to England under the um, urging of more conservative governors did 
address Parliament, but the Continental Congress itself did not address Parliament because it regarded Parliament as not a legitimate ruler of the colonies. They they, they admitted that they were under the king, but not under Parliament. And to me, one of the things that was interesting, sorry I interrupted you, but is that they start to refer to Parliament as the British Parliament rather than Parliament. And so they they were separating themselves um, linguistically from the power of the Parliament. Wow. And, and actually, that's something I want to get at a bit is uh, this uh, reading about this period, reading the, the documents that you, that you explore in this period, you get the sense of some of some um, uh, important exploration of the foundational I- ideology, really, of the, of the revolution. Um, uh, there's uh, one of the uh, pieces that you describe in detail. You, we have a cover image for a piece drafted by a very young Alexander Hamilton. Um, where he uh, is uh, laying out his thoughts about some of the issues under debate. Uh, right. Famously, Thomas Jefferson's summary view of the rights of British America comes out in this period. Right. Maybe uh, tell us about ha- what Hamilton's accomplishing here, or talk to us about the ideas that are that are that are swirling about. Well, Hamilton, in this, um, I like to joke about this pamphlet because it's long, and he doesn't know how to stop it. It's like an undergraduate paper because he yeah. was an undergraduate at. at at King's College, which became Columbia at the time he wrote it. And he wrote it to defend the Continental Congress against the attack of, he thought, the president of the college. But he was wrong. He was not attacking. He was not defending against the president of the college. The president of the college, Miles Cooper, did not write this pamphlet. But Hamilton thought he did at the time that he wrote his full vindication. So it's known today as Hamilton's first uh, major publication, but as I said, if you read it, you will see he literally doesn't know how to stop. He just <laughs> keeps going and going and repeating himself. It's like an undergraduate paper. Sorry. Uh, undergraduate so, it's not, so he's still coming of age. Um, <laughs> Jefferson's summary view um, is is more substantial and I, and I think Absolutely. more more flushed out with ideas. Um, what what's um, I, I, there's a bigger question that I haven't asked you because you and I talked about it off air, uh, but I want to explore it now. Why, why this year? Why did you decide to write this book? Uh, and I, we've explored a lot of the, the, the comings and goings, the happenings and the ideas. Uh, but what drew you initially uh, to the well, What actually drew me initially was my doctoral dissertation, which was on okay. the loyalists. And when I wrote my doctoral dissertation back in the dark ages of the 1960s, I realized in the course of working on my dissertation on the loyalists who fled to England during the revolution that um, that it was 1774 that in effect made loyalists and that therefore made disloyalists. Um, And indeed, I discovered in working on this book that the word loyalist was used for the first time during the year 1774. And you can't have a loyalist until you have people who are perceived as being disloyal. And so that's that's to me what is this is crucial. I mean, I think many people who write about the coming of the revolution start and that's a logical way to start with the Stamp Act crisis and so forth. But in fact, there is this extremely broad coalition of Americans before 1774 who are all in favor of resisting Britain. It's very broad. There are not very many people in the colonies. There are a few, but not very many who say, no, Britain should not be resisted in what it's doing. But in 1774, as certain people like Samuel Adams become more radical, other people become more nervous and pull back and create, in effect, loyalists because they 
see the way that things are going. And indeed, there are indications as early as I say in October of 74 that there are people who are thinking about independence very seriously. And long before, of course, the declaration is adopted. One of the images in your book, uh, it comes out of Virginia, the alternative of Williamsburg, it's called. And, and I, I think it gives some sense. There's a lot to unpack in this image, but it yeah. gives some sense really of, of what might have started to unsettle uh, people that, that you say may, may have started to call themselves loyalists. Uh, yeah. The the violence, the threats, the the, uh, um, the as you said, the radicalism uh, of of the period. Um, so, what are we seeing here in this in this image in Williamsburg in, in late seventy four? Yeah, well, what we're seeing is an image that is actually drawn from a description in a letter that I found. It was written from Norfolk in uh, in November of seventy four, and it des- but it describes an incident in in Williamsburg where one man. Um, uh, hung up a pole with tar and feathers on it. In the background, it's a gallows in this image, but it was not a it was not a gallows in actuality. And uh, where men were being forced to uh, adhere to the Continental Association, which was adopted by the Continental Congress uh, at the very end of its meeting in October of seventy four. And so the uh, British cartoonist, and this, by the way, is the uh, same cartoonist who did the other cartoon. Um, the British cartoonist shows all the locals, um, this woman with a child, uh, men with guns and so forth, coercing this bewigged gentleman into signing this statement that he clearly is not very happy about signing. Wow. And so b- back there, and the, the, what's ha- hovering in the background, that, those are, that's a, a, a barrel of tar and a bunch that's of feathers? A barrel of tar and a bunch of feathers, and that's the alternative of Williamsburg. If you don't sign, huh. you'll be tarred and feathered. That's okay. The, well, the title finally makes sense to me. Thank you. That's the threat. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in in uh, in writing this book, you mentioned the long year. And before we go to audience questions, I do want you to take us into seventeen seventy five. Um, so, with the with the the uh, decisions of the Continental Congress um, to uh, to uh, basically wage economic warfare, right, to try to press their point uh, is part of what's happening. Um, but uh, what what happens as we round uh, into the new year in 75? What, what, what's happening before April? Yeah, well, one of the major things I discovered is that by December of 74, January of 75, pretty much everybody in the colonies is writing letters to England saying it's all over unless you guys change your policy. Um, uh, this is the governors who are saying, I can't control these people. Um, this is the um, individual colonists who are saying we are determined to continue to resist unless you give in on these laws that we, you know, that we hate and that we are resisting unless you give in on the claims that parliament can tax us. Um, and, um, so there's a, there's a kind of a uniform statement of letters. I was just stunned to discover all these letters that were written to England by ordinary people, as well as by governors saying, this is it. This is the turning point. And then a lot of people in in February of 75 saying, we expect war. Um, and sure enough, they were right. <laughs> wow. Um, and yeah. um, that, that does seem early. It seems extra- strikingly early. I think you have to, to do what you did in this book, which is to really uh, dive in deep into the period to get a sense of, of that early move towards independence or something like it. They, um, well, yes, I think that's right. And I do see um, people thinking about independence at a time when nobody's really thought they were thinking about independence, or at least at the very least, they were thinking about a war. Um, 
and that they they expected a war. And there was, of course, this kind of almost a rehearsal for Lexington and Concord that uh, my friend Peter Hoffer has written about in a very brief book about the he calls the Salem gunpowder raid, which is, occurs a month earlier, uh, where troops go to Salem to try to grab um, some gunpowder that they know is stored there. And they're basically fended off. And there isn't any there is no warfare because both sides sort of say, OK, we're not going to do that. Um, hmm. the, the, the British commander pulls back. The Americans allow him to make a symbolic crossing of a crucial bridge and then he goes back again and then they go back to boston and he announces that you know they couldn't get the gunpowder that they were looking for um but it's it's like a foray that's almost a um a precursor of lexington and concord um but by the by the that was those troops went out before gage got his orders from dartmouth um dartmouth wrote uh dartmouth the american secretary wrote in late January of 74, telling Gage, better act now than later, just because we're going to nip this in the bud before they get a chance to really organize themselves more than they are now. And after Gage received that order immediately, and then he did that in in mid-April, immediately he then ordered the troops to Concord to get what he thought were cannon and supplies that were there, which were in fact there. And that's what started the war. It did. Uh, so let's let's uh, let's explore some of the ways that the Americans reacted with our first audience question. Uh, and I, I like this one. Um, we have a question from Cynthia Miller about uh, the trade embargoes uh, that you talk about. Um, uh, could you talk about the ways that this actually affected Great Britain? Uh, were these effective? Did they did they hurt the economy? Did they move the needle at all in overseas? Well, it didn't really happen until October. I mean, they the um, the the trade embargo was adopted by the First Continental Congress, and it was not enforced until the First Continental Congress could, um, um, was dissolved in late October of seventy four. They had tried to uh, enforce it, but in fact, by the time the war started, there was hardly any chance for it to have any impact. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, they were and the colonists, as I point about in the book, as I point out in the book. Um, were very much in disagreement about whether it was just going to be non-importation or also non-exportation. And in fact, they probably were have, going to have a much greater impact with non-exportation, telling the Brits, we're not going to send you our tobacco, we're not going to send you our rice and so forth, our indigo, um, our other products, or we're not going to send them to the West Indies. Um, that would be more... Uh, of an impact, but it never really happened before the war started. So mm -hmm. it's kind of irrelevant. I mean, they spent a lot of time talking about it, but it turned out to be pretty much irrelevant. It was caught up by the trend of events. Well, let me ask you, though, to, to, uh, as a someone who's taught uh, this period in American history for many, many years, across the years, um, what you described sounds painful on the Americans' part to not sell their goods, to not buy things that they really want, like tea. Yeah. Uh, how can you describe that? How difficult was it to persuade Americans to buy into these ideas? Well, they were, especially with tea. I work a lot on the on the attempt to get Americans to agree not to drink tea. Yeah. Um, and there were big debates about that, and uh, some of it was, you know, don't drink tea because it's bad for your health, which we, which I think is quite hilarious. Um, but also, uh, especially telling women don't drink tea because it will, you will have sickly children if you drink too much tea. Um, and the women, the women who were women who responded in the newspaper said, 
you people are crazy. Why don't you just tell us you don't want us to drink it for political reasons? And we're much more likely to do that yeah. than, than we're not going to fall for this kind of stupid argument you're making. So um, the colonists um, did try very hard um, to persuade people. But again, uh, nothing really happened in 74 except for the tea boycott. I mean, it's later on that they um, that the issue other issues sort of come in, the issue of non-exportation and so forth. But I might add that one of the issues in in 74 was that even though people were saying they weren't drinking tea, they were clearly drinking smuggled tea. They just weren't drinking East India Company tea. And um, and there were all kinds of people who, you know, who supposedly burn their tea and so forth. But they have secret stashes of it. And uh, I have in the book um, these these wonderful little slips of paper that are out in the Huntington Library where people are asking members of the local committee to please let us have some of the tea that the com- the committee has in its hands because we need it for health healthful reasons. I mean, because people think it's good for your health, which yeah. is quite all the propaganda to the opposite. And um, now everybody, you know, it was it was a sign of patriotism not to drink tea, but I think most people still continue to drink tea. And wow. uh, James Victor um, from Hong Kong, who I think I mentioned earlier, has found that that tea merchants were still advertising tea in the papers in this period. You know, so wow. <laughs> there was. But the, the, the other administration This is a, a great question coming in from Dale Bell, uh, asking about whether the royal governments ever really invoked it. Um, no. What happened to that act? No, it didn't. They could never. They never could invoke it because they were. They were by the time the information about it arrived, confirmation of it did not actually arrive in the colonies until um, the late summer of seventy four, hmm. um, and. They did not have any, and by then the royal governors were so losing authority over their people, quote unquote, that they they could not do it. They couldn't have done it even if they wanted to. In fact, many of the governors wrote back to England, wrote back to Dartmouth and said, we don't dare try to enforce authority because all it will do is show our impotence. It will just show that we are powerless and we don't want to make that so obvious as it now is. And so uh, it it never became an issue. It literally never, it never became an issue. Um, The the act was rumored earlier in the summer, but the actual confirmation of its passage, you know, because of the months at sea and so forth um, and the signing by the King did not arrive until the late summer. So it, it was never, um, never put into effect. Great. Uh, I, I, I didn't know the answer to that, so I'm glad, I'm glad uh, it was asked directly. Um, there's another question that we have coming up uh, with uh, with regard to uh, the the movements, the the what's happening outside of Massachusetts. Um, are, it, take a step away from Boston for a minute. Is there a, is there another area of the colonies that came close to matching the fervor of Boston? Uh, where would you find, say, the, the second most uh, vibrant place uh, aside from uh, Sam Adams' Boston? Probably um, certain people in Charleston, not other people. I mean, Charleston was divided. Uh, South Carolina was divided, especially between Charleston and the hinterland, where the hinterland tended to be more loyal uh, and certainly very wary of what was going on. But there were very avid patriots, quote unquote, in Charleston itself. Um, and wait, in Virginia, wait, wait, too. Can, can, can you identify why that would be? Why, why Boston and Charleston might be the, at the top? Because they seem so far apart in all kinds of ways. Yeah, well, they are the, the two major ports. Um, 
of the time. Um, the um, And they were, in a way, peripheral in the sense that the British power was uh, tended to be um, centered in New York at the time because that's where the that's where there were troops scheduled. There were troops who were stationed in New York at the time, and mm. Philadelphia was basically dominated by Quakers, and they just wanted to stay out of everything. So um, the Quakers were pacifists, and so they were not. There were very few Quakers who were involved, deeply involved. And in fact, the Quakers officially adopted a position that was that if you got in too involved, you were excommunicated, in effect, from the religion. You would be written out of the meeting if you became involved. If you became involved in a patriot um, movement, so so uh, the Quakers who dominated the politics of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania generally did not become involved. New York was a hotbed of loyalism and a hotbed of British authority. So it's Charleston and, and, and Boston who are the farthest really away from the, the actual reach of British authority who become um, the, the hotbeds in effect. But Charleston, as I said, was sharply divided, sharply divided, unlike Boston. I mean, Boston was divided. Boston was divided at the crucial we, we tend to think everybody in Boston was in agreement, but they weren't. There were three days of extremely contentious town meetings in June of 1774 where the town of Boston debated what to happen, what to do in response to the Port Act. I talk about those meetings in detail, and at the end of them, there was a vote, and at least a quarter of the, I mean, uh, between a quarter and a fifth of the men there voted against the Committee of Correspondence, voted against Samuel Adams, and walked out of the meeting. So wow. it was not, they were, they were by no means the majority, but the conservatives had a large group of people in Boston who were involved. And you did mention Virginia briefly before I, I, I followed you up on Charleston. How would you describe Virginia? If you had to describe ratios, I mean, well, well, it's, it it's hard to say. I mean, in Virginia, um, the the Scots factors, as everybody watching this and thinking about Virginia knows about Scots factors, the Scots factors tend to be loyal, um, and they they were all involved in the tobacco trade. That's what they were there for, and so they um, they did not want to um, have the trade abandoned or anything like that. Um, so that was different, but the. Uh, the planters, I think, were largely in favor of um, of uh, the patriot side. Um, you don't see that many planters who are not, um, and they were in, in favor of it because of the um, because of their general sense of the importance of local government, which was embedded in Virginia history. Um, actually, going back to the first um the first virginia charter under the um under the virginia company well thanks Tiffany, for that question. Uh, we have another one uh, i'd like to ask we, you mentioned uh briefly it's coming from lauren gray um you mentioned your your doctoral work uh and then yeah. you mentioned this book uh there's a lot in between uh, yeah. could you uh, could you talk to us uh, and actually i'm gonna go ahead and read this because i sat behind you once at a conference and was too shy to say hello <laughs> Uh, uh, such a shame. I wish I had. Um, uh, but uh, could you describe uh, where this fits into the to the breadth of your work across the the decades? Well, it's um, this would have been my second book if I hadn't gotten into gender history. That was the whole idea. It was when I when I first moved to Cornell uh, in 1971, and just about the time my dissertation was published. It was published in '72. I had to decide what my next project was going to be. And so I went back and forth between thinking about 1774, which was 
the topic I'd come up with, as I explained earlier, I understood now how important it was. And then that's when women's history exploded. And so I got thoroughly involved in women's history and then gender history. And that took me away from this topic for a very long time. Um, and I, I actually for years tried to peddle it to my graduate students and nobody would go for it. So <laughs> nobody had written it by the time I finished my books on gender um, by the early part of, the, of this uh, decade. By, um, by My last book on gender was published in, 19, in 2011. So I said, well, hell with it. Nobody's done this book, so I'm going to do it now. But it's wow. been – so this book has been in my head and in my teaching all these years, but it was not researched until the last seven or eight years. Uh, let's let's stay on this question of women's history um, because uh, there's a uh, a lot to explore here, and you, you cover a lot of, of, of great uh, material within this book. Uh, can you describe uh, some of the ways? Um, we've got a question coming up from Aaron McDonough actually uh, about uh, the ways that women were specifically. Um, activated in the movements or the ways that they took the lead in the movements. Uh, you mentioned tea briefly, but maybe you could talk about that and, and other examples. Well, they were um, activated to uh, by telling them or asking them not to consume tea. And then they, some of them said, yeah, um, we're not going to, we're not going to consume tea and that's going to be our, our, our contribution in 1774. That's pretty much what they did. Um, um, there, I found um, they're very women were very interested in politics. I found very very engaged letters um, on political subjects from women. I actually was fortunate enough to went, hit a cache of of depositions um, from a group of ordinary women about um, they were ordinary loyalist women actually about threats to them and their families. Um, this is in Massachusetts in early 1775 and how they responded and their political stuff. But in fact, um, women were involved um, in um, the coming of the revolution, not so much in 74 as they were previously in the um, in the non-importation and non-consumption movements in response to the Townsend Act in the late 1760s. And so where they were involved in also spinning and home manufacturers, but that doesn't really come up in 1774. I mean, I tried in this book to be very precise about the chronology because I thought that a lot of people have not been precise about the chronology of this period. And oftentimes what you find in books written about the immediate uh, immediately the period before the revolution, a lot of what comes up is um, stuff about uh, that goes after the start of the war. And I thought that after the war starts, things really change dramatically. And so I end the books very specifically with the uh, Lexington and Concord, and I do not do anything after that. And so um, I think it's very important to, to be very precise chronologically in talking about what's happening in this year. And um, so it's mostly tea at this time um, or um, uh, writing, um, sometimes poetry. Um, um, Mercy Warren wrote a, wrote a poem that John Adams greatly admired. No one else admired it. It wasn't, it wasn't reprinted anyone else, anywhere else. There were other poems about tea and about women that were reprinted in other newspapers, but Mercy Warren's was never reprinted, which I find very wow. amusing because she's yeah. the author we remember today. Of course, the others are published anonymously, so we don't know who wrote them. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I, I want to uh, take before we go to another audience question. I want to take an opportunity to ask a question that, that, that I, I've been curious to, uh, to explore with you. Um, when I taught at the University of Oklahoma, I, did, I taught a lot of uh, 
constitutional history and sort of the history of, of constitutionalism in America. And that, that's an idea that comes, it comes, jumps off the page of you in this book. Uh, and in fact, I want to read a line out of your uh, afterward uh, as you're talking about the, 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 where you say you win the book with the outbreak of the war in April of 75. Uh, you say by April 19, 1775, Americans had not yet formally adopted a declaration of independence, but their leaders had long since practiced independence in thought and deed. The extra legal committees and congresses, unconstitutional and traditional British understanding, had assumed the mantle of governance. I wonder if you could talk to us about uh, what this means. Obviously, I think everyone knows there is no constitution yet. So what do people mean when they describe something as being unconstitutional? And how does that factor into your story here? Right. Uh, and that's actually turned out to be very important because as I was reading the material from this year, I realized that a lot of people were talking about things being unconstitutional. And I thought, what did they mean by that? So, of course, I did what you do. I looked it up in the Oxford English Dictionary for the uh, for the um, for the uh, definitions that are from this period. And yeah. in fact, of course, in those times, constitution meant simply the system of government. It didn't mean a document or anything like that. So when people talked about the British Constitution, they meant the regular traditional British system of government. So when then the word unconstitutional started being used in 1774, it was used as a cudgel by both sides. The huh. British said the Americans were acting unconstitutionally because they were setting up these bodies that had no basis in British law, that were not in the colonial charters, that were these separate congresses that I talked about earlier. On the other hand, the Americans said what the British were doing was unconstitutional because they were trying to impose taxes on the colonies and trying to change the system of government in the colonies. And so all of this, what everybody was charging everybody else with being unconstitutional. And wow. it really struck me. And what was especially struck me was when people at the time in 1773 and 1774 wrote letters to the editor in effect of the newspaper saying, what does this term mean? We've never heard this before. So wow. it just showed to me that it was a neologism at the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, and, and, but everybody used it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, loyalists that that term coming out then, and, and now of course you have uh, a, another, um, uh, obviously not a brand new term, probably in the in the classic OED sense, but it does seem to be used, used in new ways and really surprising people in the ways that it's being used in the 1770s. Um, uh, there, we have another question uh, coming in from the audience that uh, uh, Geraldine asked uh, uh, about an aha moment in research. Oh, you know, something uh, that just, just surprised you. And I remember uh, always uh, sort of yeah. reminding my students when they're thinking about what to write, what really surprised you and what you were researching. Uh, was there an aha moment that, that really uh, took you forward? That's a really good question. I hadn't really thought about that before. Uh, and there are various, uh, I would say there are various moments in the course of working on the book, but the one that really struck me was when I realized what the colonists did in response to the news that they received in January of 1775 of what the king had said to the opening of the new parliament in November of 1774. Okay. King, the, the king's speech, which basically said these people are rebels, that's what it said, uh, arrived in the colonies in January of in the middle. It arrived in Rhode Island, actually, in the, in the middle of January 1775. And immediately, immediately in three northern colonies in Rhode Island, in Connecticut and in New Hampshire, crowds attacked local forts 
seized muskets, gunpowder, and cannon, and carried them away. Wow. And this was, and I had never thought of that before. There, the three moments, all they come within uh, a week or 10 days of each other. And it, it is symbolized for people elsewhere in the colonies. I have some letters in the, in the book from Marylanders saying, ah, what the hell is going on in New England? You people are revolting. And in fact, it was a very dramatic moment for me. And it all happened because of the arrival of the news of what the king said. And in fact, Abigail Adams says the die is cast when she reads the king's speech. That's one of her quotes. And another, and a printer in, in Providence, Rhode Island says the same thing. In his, in his, when he prints the king's speech, he adds at the end, the die is cast. And wow. so this, again, what I was saying earlier, really, about this crucial period of late December into January of 75 is when, is when a lot of things happened. And, it, and when, when I think the colonists had an aha moment um, when the king's speech came. And I, I, I want to say, I want to add here that one of the crucial things about the book is that it's really important to be precise about chronology because it, as I've said several times over the course of this evening, it took a while for news to arrive and so um, oftentimes things happened in England. Um, and when we read books about it, we tend to think, oh, yeah, or the colonists learned about it. But no, the colonists learned about these things six to eight weeks or later, usually, and sometimes even much later than that. In fact, going back to the very beginning, the Tea Act was actually adopted in May of 73, but the colonists didn't, it was delayed. The news was delayed getting to the colonists. They didn't really know about what it meant until October. Wow. So, I mean, the delay was very important. And in the case of the King's speech, I think nobody else has connected. Well, people, for one thing, those three incidents I just mentioned in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New Hampshire, they've tended to be written, written about in the local histories of Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. They haven't been written about together. And they haven't been written about together with the news that that they were what set them off was the arrival of the king's speech. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it, that and that is a, a, quite some time before April uh, for what sounded to me like almost acts of war. It's yes, remarkable. exactly, exactly, right. Uh, uh, so we we have another question uh, coming in that I, I'd like to explore with you. This comes from uh, Doug Bradburn, historian and, and president oh, yeah. of Alberta. Uh, he asks, how important was Patrick Henry's support for the cause uh, by calling himself an American, not a Virginian? Argument the colonists should argue from uh, natural rights rather than the British Constitution. Uh, how does Patrick Henry figure in, into your story here? Well, I don't really talk about Patrick Henry in the book, alas, but talk, calling themselves an American rather than a Virginian is actually quite important. And I didn't talk about that language exactly, but what I talk about in the book is the extension of the word countryman from what its previous meaning was, was someone who was a resident of your colony to someone who was a resident of America. And um, I noticed that usage first in Philadelphia, actually, when um, artisans in Philadelphia put out a broadside asking for support um, for artisans in, in, uh, in New York who were resisting helping the British in Boston. And they used the word countrymen to describe the artisans in New York, which really wept out at me because if you look, for example, at Henry... Lawrence's um, 
letters from England before he goes back in the in this period Lawrence is mostly in England but he comes home to South Carolina and when he's still in England he uses the word countryman clearly to mean residents of South Carolina so I didn't use uh, I didn't use Patrick Henry and I didn't use this language that you're talking about but I use the same kind of transition and it does happen very much in the course of 1774 generally that's great. Uh, let's let's go ahead um, uh, as, as we come into our last question. I, I, do, I just want to thank you for taking time tonight. I, I don't want to miss that opportunity as we wrap up in a minute. Uh, but uh, this has been a great opportunity to explore this. I want to remind everyone that this uh, book is for sale at the Mount Vernon shops. You can reach out uh, and purchase it online. Uh, help support Mount Vernon that way. Uh, we're so grateful for all of your support and joining us for these events. Uh, and we're so excited to be able to open one day soon. Uh, that day uh, will will come uh, uh, soon, I hope. And and I, I'm excited to be able to welcome you. And Dr. Norton, excited to welcome you to Mount Vernon uh, one day soon. We can actually have you in, in person. I'd like to uh, come back. I've been there. <laughs> absolutely. I'd love to have you back. Uh, like so let's, back. let's go ahead and, and, and come to our final question. Uh, uh, Gregory asked about uh, this widespread anger against parliaments, and, um, uh, and and really it's a question about inevitability. Um, can we view the revolution and its eventual success as being, in a sense, inevitable? When you studied 1774 uh, into 1775, uh, do you feel like independence is inevitable? Uh, uh, do you feel like a victory uh, uh, in terms of the Americans being able to actually unite and pull this off? Uh, how would you describe uh, the, your sense of, of things uh, looking at this snapshot in time? That's a really good question, and it actually kind of mirrors questions I used to ask my undergraduates on final exams. Was the revolution inevitable? Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> so what's the right answer? <laughs> there is no right answer. Um, but anyway, um, let's see. How would I respond? I think that um, the um, it wasn't inevitable at the beginning of 1774. I would say that clearly. I think that the way the British responded to what the Americans were doing helped to make it more or less inevitable by the end of the year. Um, mm -hmm. the, um, the British were so heavy handed. Um, they were, even though there were Americans who tried to educate them about America, like Joseph Reed, who we haven't talked about from Philadelphia, but who was, whose correspondence with Lord Dartmouth, I do talk about in the book at some length. I mean, Dartmouth, Reed thinks he can convince Dartmouth to behave and act differently by telling him what he regards as the truth about what's going on in the colonies. Um, Dartmouth never pays any attention. And so um, I think that what really makes the revolution inevitable is the heavy handed response of the British to everything that the Americans are doing in 1774. And I, let me just say that one of the things that just really leapt out at me is a quote that I use in the book and it's a it's published in a Philadelphia newspaper right at the end of the First Continental Congress. I have no idea who wrote it. It's clearly not written by Thomas Paine. I checked that out, but Paine didn't arrive in Philadelphia until several several weeks after it appeared. But it's very radical. It's recognized at its as it, at its own time as radical. But one of the things the guy says is the author says is. He goes on and on about how wonderful the Congress is. And then he says, I wish I could be alive in 1874 to see the centennial celebration. Wow. There will be bells, whistles, fireworks, and so forth. And if that's not looking towards independence, I don't know what it is. 
And everybody who read it recognized that. And so the guy got, the author got a lot of pushback and I never found something else that that person, whoever it was, I have no idea who it was, whatever that person wrote, I have no idea um, what happened. But I think that person had a vision of independence and had a vision of independence at the end of the First Continental Congress. Well, thanks so much for, for uh, taking us through the story. And there's a lot more to learn in the book. There's, it's a, a, a remarkably uh, detailed, fascinating uh, exploration of, of the, the early moments of the revolution. You're able to purchase it uh, right there at the link you see in front of you. Uh, and uh, uh, on behalf of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, the Washington Library of Mount Vernon, uh, we're really grateful for your time. For all of you out there watching and for your questions, we're extraordinarily grateful uh, and uh, just thrilled to be able to to come to you, even though it's going to be virtual uh, for a while longer, uh, to help to uh, talk about some of the history that Mount Vernon pre- preserves and, and wants to help support. So thank yeah. you for this, Dr. Norton. Really enjoyed it. Well, uh, thank and you. It's been fun. I will have you to Mount Vernon one day soon. Uh, To all of you out there, thank you so much. Uh, Hope to see you again soon in many of our live streams. And a week from, again, a week from the night, we'll have Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky on talking about George Washington's cabinet. Thank you to everyone and good night. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.